Good morning. I'm glad everybody can make it today. It is an honor to introduce our speaker today, Mr. Jerry DeLeachman. Many of you in the room have known him probably your whole life. Others of you have heard his talks and have been moved and inspired. And then others of you may have never heard of one of his talks. So button your chin strap because it's going to be a big one. I was fortunate enough, y'all, yesterday to spend a few hours with Jerry. And he said, Luke, sometimes when I talk around the country, the guy introducing me builds me up so much that I feel pressure. And I look around to make sure that I'm the guy they're actually talking about. So I'm not going to do that this morning. Um, I think most of y'all know Jerry's path from Lanier High School to playing for Bear Bryant to being the chaplain of the Washington Redskins. You may have heard some of these stories about sneaking medicine into China. Ended up in the Pentagon with four-star generals. You hear these tall tales, and it sounds like some 007 for Jesus out there in the world doing good. Uh, But what I learned yesterday talking to Jerry is that while those stories are pretty remarkable, that's not what draws men to Jerry. After a few hours of talking, it dawned on me that what draws men to Jerry is his bold, outspoken trust in God and what God has done in his life and what God continues to do in his life. And so whenever you get a man like that with zeal for his faith, it draws us Christian men near him because we all know deep down that we need to be living a little more godly life, striving to be a little more in touch with God. So that is what draws men to Jerry. It is not all the stories, although they are amazing. It's your faith. It's your zeal. It's your bold, outspoken faith in God. And we know with what's coming down the track in this country that we need to be a little more outspoken to about our faith and, and a little more serious about our walk. So really excited, Jerry. Thank you so much for being here. Jerry is a wife to Holly, a dad of uh, three kids, spent 30 years in the D.C. area ministering to everybody, and now lives in Colorado and came all this way to give us a talk today. So please give a warm welcome for Jerry Leachman. Yeah, okay. All right, thank you. Too many licks playing football, I think. Now, is there somebody that's got the control? It's too loud. Where are you? Don't make me come back there. Hey, good morning, man. Thanks for getting up, getting out here. Ladies, good to see you, too. Uh, Boy, this has just been a... A journey back home. I haven't been in Montgomery a long time. I just, all my days seeing all old teammates and friends. I still love all you guys. My sweetest memories of my childhood were here in Montgomery. I grew up in Europe on fighter squadron bases. We were military. My dad's last duty assignment was Maxwell Air Force Base. And I went to Cloverdale in about the fifth grade and then went through Lanier. And we were living on a big movie set back then, and most of us kind of knew it. Uh, gosh, I remember a friend of mine, uh, we, his granddad had a horse in Cloverdale in his backyard. We didn't have a lot of rules back then. We'd just get on and ride it down Fairview Avenue. Then if uh, the coaches weren't there, we'd get it on the football field at Cloverdale and time it, racing it up and down the field. Uh, I remember Harris Magoo peeling out of the parking lot when school was over at Lanier. 442. Peyton Massas had a 442. And uh, I was real proud. You guys always obeyed the speed limit. I was really impressed with that. Uh, did Coach Green make it here today? Coach Green, he coached, uh, coached us at Cloverdale. Y'all may remember him, some of you. He calls me all the time, and 
He said, if you don't call me right back, I'm going to come out to Colorado and kick your butt. And then he'll call me back again and said, well, I take it back. I'm not going to do that. I can't get my foot that high anymore, but I'll do it in my mind. You know, uh, one of the groups, we were in Washington 32 years, and uh, we, uh, we've been, uh, we have a little ranch out in California, uh, Colorado where we live now. And uh, I come back to Washington, there's a few groups I didn't want to give up, and one's in Middleburg, Virginia. It's a Civil War town. Uh, people out there think they're English. They have jumping horses and all of that stuff, you know. And uh, we call it the largest tweed coat com- competition in the world. And uh, I, we have a group there called Second Tuesday of Men, and I'll fly back usually every month and, and do that. We're in about our fourth year, and they're all really pretty astute business guys. And uh, the first year, we adjourn in May for the summer. There was this Italian guy that never spoke a word in all nine months that we had it before we adjourned the three months in the summer. And his name was Vito. How you doing? He's from Jersey. He's big. He looks like Pavarotti. And he, his jacket was always open, gold chains. And I, I knew he, uh, it turns out he, he owns one of the biggest uh, glass companies where they build skyscrapers, that kind of glass, you know. And uh, he never said a word the whole time. He'd always walk in a little late, and, and the men would just kind of be docile around him when he walked in. He sat at the table, and nobody would sit by the left or the right over there. And after the last, and, and he would just look at me the whole time. Just like staring through me all year long. And I'd look at him and go, man, you don't want to tick this dude off. And he came up to me after the last session. And Italians get in your face. You know, men, for men, I don't know about women, but men, you know, if a guy can only get so close, and if he gets a little closer, it makes us uncomfortable. And he would break that barrier and get, kind of get like that. Well, he did. This is the first time he spoke to me. He stood to the side, and people want to come up and say, hey, to the speaker and all that, and they did that and cleared out. Then Vito walks up to me and says, I'm going to tell you something. He's right there. You're teaching this year. It's changed my life. Totally changed my life. I tell my wife everything you say. I grew up from the cradle of Catholic in New Jersey. But this has changed my life. And he says, I'm going to tell you something. You listening to me? I said, yeah, Vito. (laughs) And then he gets even closer. We're almost nose to nose. And he looks left, looks right. He says, if I can do anything for you. <laughs> then he does this again. I mean anything. I'm like, crap, who is this guy? Don Corleone. He said, you let me know. Capiche? I said, yes, sir, capiche. <laughs> so I started a greeting there in Middleburg, and it's a good icebreaker. I do it everywhere I go. I call it the veto greeting because... They, they have a way, the humor up in Jersey and New York that I've always liked. And they have a greeting, you know, Christ rebuked people for their lack of hospitality. And they have a greeting. When they, when they come upon each other, they go, how you doing? Who's better than you? And then they get in an argument. You. No, no, no. You. No, you. Only you. So, I want you guys to give, be hospital to each other this morning. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. I want you to stand up. I want some attitude. I want an accent and an argument. Who's better than you? Let's go. 60 seconds. <sighs> Who's better than you? <laughs>
What? 10.45. Okay. I just wanted you to say that. One thing I remember being in Alabama, we used to say, thank God for Mississippi or we'd be last in a bunch of stuff. And uh, I don't know if you've heard the one about the Mississippi family that moved to Alabama. And they had a boy in the fourth grade and they were so stressed out just hoping this little fellow would adjust, that people would like him and he'd be accepted. If that would work out, his new job promote everything would be perfect. Well, they dropped the little, they dropped their kid off to school and he came back the first day. He said, Mama, Daddy, teacher said I can read better than anybody in our class. And his daddy said, that's because of your fine Mississippi education, son. Second day he came home and said, Daddy, teacher said I'm best at math than anybody in my class in fourth grade. He said, that's because of that fine Mississippi education. Third day he came home and said, Daddy, teacher said I can run faster and I'm stronger and I can jump higher than any kid in the school. Is that because of my fine Mississippi education? He said, no, son, that's because you're 18 years old. <laughs> All right, if you're from Mississippi, I'm sorry. I'm going to pray a brief prayer for you. Because these are the times that try men's soul. I don't go around giving talks. I go around delivering messages. I'll tell you more about that. I'm going to pray that all of you individually would have a Pentecostal gift of hearing. One of my mentors in the scripture was from a Williamsburg Chaplain, Williamsburg. And he said to me one day, have you ever prayed that your audience, even if you're meeting with one guy in a diner or a ballroom full of people, would have a Pentecostal gift of hearing? I said, I've never heard of that. I don't know what it is. He said, well, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached. Thousands came to Christ. And it says they spoke in cloven tongues of fire. And the Christians have been arguing about that one ever since. Read it again, son. I read it again. It said, each one heard in his own tongue what he needed to hear. He said, that's a Pentecostal gift of hearing. So when you pray that, that means as you read the scriptures, you give the message, each person within your hearing will hear supernaturally what they need to hear for their point in their journey. Because everybody's got a story, don't they? Everybody's got something. And uh, So let me just say, and I, I try to reach myself for Christ when I speak. I never try to reach the audience. I was taught the best way to show people and lead people to Christ is to let them see you trying to reach yourself. So I generally preach to myself and I invite my audience to jump on the train and take a ride with me. Or just stand there, but the train's pulling out. Lord, I pray that we'd all, myself included, would hear something today. Time is fleeting. We don't need one more little religious gathering, and we know it. These times give us butterflies, and we know something's up. We do. It is. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us in our own tongue and give us a message for what we need to hear for where we are in this moment so we can move forward. In Christ's name, amen. About five years ago, I had a checkup, and they said, man, you're like a Marine for your age. Way to go. You're in shape. Two weeks later, I had a heart attack, and I died. My medical records said I was flatlined from 10 to 15 minutes, and I was somewhere else. So I'm an eyewitness. I don't want your opinion. I don't care about your opinion. I don't want to hear your theology. An eyewitness is never held hostage by some dude with an opinion. I was there. I was sent back to give you a message. I didn't have one of those cute little things where I'm going, I saw flowers and I saw a rainbow. No. No, I was in the presence of Christ. It was an atmosphere of absolute truth. 
which is not like life on this side of the earth. We're all full of lies. The Bible says every man's a liar, even preachers. You know, we exaggerate stories just by nature or hedge it that way or this way. We can't help it. It's just in our nature. Even though we desire to be 100% truthful, we can't be. But it's that desire that pleases God to be truthful. He knows it. He knows our heart. I was shown something that I'll never forget, and it was the entrance to hell. And it was complete outer darkness. I was also shown the glorious light of heaven, indescribable. People go, explain, to, I don't, I, I just speak English. I, I, there are no words to describe, we don't have language to describe it. The colors I can't describe to you. Otherworldly, why? Because they are. But I, I was instructed by the Lord, just a brief word, when I knew I was dying, I just kept saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Now, the other side of my brain's going, you've given 15,000 talks. That's all you got? That's all I had. Jesus. I thought, I just always said, if I'm dying, I want to die with Jesus on my lips. Because when I got there, he's all I had. You know, all the friends I've tried to impress, important people I've been around, I wanted them to like, they weren't there. If they were, they can't do anything for you. Stop kissing up to people, guys. They can't do anything for you. Really. You know, if you decide to fear God and let God give you favor, you'll lose your fear of people. I'm not afraid of you guys. You can say, I hate that talk. You suck. Get out of here and don't ever come back. Fine. But I'm not mentally ill. I want to do a good job. I want you all to talk me up. I'm not crazy. But if you don't, I'm fine. I'm finally free from all of that. Do you all know what I'm talking about? People pleasing? And it's heartbreaking. I've worked with men and families all my life, but mostly men. It's heartbreaking. They spend their life trying to get validated from what they have, who they know, and what they've done. A guy in one of my small groups won the Entrepreneur of the Year in D.C., sold his company for $250 million, started it from scratch. And uh, he got the trophy. He deserved it. He did. I said, how does it feel? He said, what do you mean? I said, I, I'm going to kind of prophesy over you. i got to guess. When you had that trophy in your car and you were on the way home from the Hilton Ballroom, and you did deserve the Entrepreneur of the Year, did you hear a little voice said, well, you got that award, but you and I still know you're not okay? He said, yeah. I hear that all the time. I can never get okay. Tom Brady said after his third Super Bowl, how do you feel, Tom? He said, I thought it It'd be different. It's not. He went on to win four more. Still lost. Still not validated. I finally learned that what Jesus Christ did on the cross validated me with God. And God finally, it wasn't football, it wasn't anything. It was what Christ did on, and, and the God the Father could put his hand on my head and said, you're okay now. Now get out there and do something with your life and have a little fun while you do But you're validated. I'm free to love people with no agenda. That's fun. Now, if you can love people like that, you'll probably be by yourself in their life. Because you know that old saying, everybody wants something? And when people sense that, that line goes out the door and around the corner. If you can love people and not want anything they have, you'll be in line by yourself in their life. Because people say, you kind of came from Alabama. You're up here talking to presidents about their faith. You teach a group of generals in the Pentagon. You're the chaplain of Fox News, an NFL team, on and on and on. I didn't seek out any of that. Guys, I made a C in chemistry at Lanier. I wasn't over, overly qualified to meet with any of those people. But I knew Christ. 
And I didn't want anything they had. Not even a picture. The Lord told me to come back and remind you and everybody I speak to, I'm not selling you nothing. I'm not raising money. I don't want any, I don't need anything you have. But your love and your friendship. That's all I want from you. But heaven is real. When you get older, you're wondering, I hope this is real. I hope there is a Jesus. It's real. Jesus is real. I'm an eyewitness. Hell is real. Now, I'll just tell you, hell, hell scares the hell out of me. And I spoke up in Birmingham Friday night to just a large group of people. I had more people coming up saying, I'm so relieved somebody still says that word because the ministers won't say it anymore. They're afraid maybe losing a donation, losing members, offending somebody. I'm not offending you. Guys, I'm here to, to warn you. Because something kept saying in my ear when I was on the other side, you've you got to get this part right. You've got to get this part right. I'm telling you this morning, as I go through some material, I don't care if you're an elder here or if you're a minister with a doctorate, check yourself out again. Peter said, make your election and calling sure. Don't take it for granted, guys. You don't want to be there all alone. Saying, well, I thought I was a Christian. Jesus said, if you take all his teachings and synthesize them, There's only three ways to live your life. You can waste it. You can sell it. Or you can give it away. Listen to this guy. He wasted it. Luke 16, there was a rich man. He had his money together. He was dressed in purple and fine linen. He lived in luxury every day. At his gate, there was a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores. And longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even though dogs came and licked his sore. The time came when the beggar died, and the angel carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man died and was buried and went to hell. Jesus said this. Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody in the New Testament. I had a lady that was our neighbor in D.C. She spoke seven languages, and she'd been a missionary to the Middle East. She was a language expert. And I said, uh, can you do a word study? Christ used two words, uh, lost and perish. I'd like to know the difference. She said, that's what I do. She came the next day and looked it up all in the original languages. She said, if you're lost, you don't really know Christ, whether you say you do or not. You're lost. But there's still time. The clock's still running. Still time on the clock. Once you've perished, that's forever. This guy perished. And she brought me a definition of hell in the original Aramaic. Hell is like a black star. It's imploding aloneness. Completely, utterly dark. There's no light. And this man said, could you tell my brothers? Could you tell? And Jesus said, no. There's no communication in and there's no communication out. It's like being in the middle of a black hole. Nothing can escape over the event horizon. That's hell for me. I love light. I watch the the sunrise out there with the Boykins this morning. I love that. I love being around you guys, hugging you, kissing you on the cheek, telling you I love you. I love fellowship. I love brotherhood and sisterhood. Being alone, totally dark, with your memories. That's double hell. Because he asked for another favor. And the Lord said, no, son, remember, in your life you had all the good things. It's over. Boy, if that doesn't sober you up, you're tone deaf. I fear for you. 
I was asked to speak in a little church in Arkansas. And uh, it was way, you know, there's an old saying, Arkansas is not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. I mean, it was just woods and chicken houses forever. And we finally pulled up to this little church, and it was a primitive Baptist church, I think is what they call it. There was a woman's outhouse and a men's outhouse. I go, wow. The minister was standing like an ambassador right on the front steps to welcome me. He was what they call a lay pastor. He had grease under his fingernail. He was a mechanic, but he pastored that church on Sunday. He was so honored that somebody from Washington, D.C. was coming to speak. And he grabbed my hand, and I was going down to one knee like that. Thank God he let go. I would have been on the steps. A lot of my ministry has been to educated people, trying to break them down and get them to get real. Come off the crap. These guys were about as real as it was. If you wanted to be in the choir that day, you just kind of came up front. They had an out-of-tune piano that played like that. Jesus is coming soon, morning or night. You know, these kind of hymns. And then they started to pray. My son was with me. He said, Pop, you got a message for these guys? I said, I did, but I don't now. I realized they thought this guy is connected in D.C. He's with Fox News. Guys, could I just tell you, Fox News cannot save you. And I was the chaplain of Fox News. I just spent a week with Britt and his wife up in Pennsylvania, Britt Hume. I've never known a person to watch Fox News for an hour and turn it off going, that was the most informative, refreshing hour I've spent in a long time. That was wonderful. They thought, I'm going to show up in their little church in Arkansas because the world's going to hell. I'm going to tell them exactly what they needed to do. The Holy Spirit changed my message, and he said, here's what I want you to tell them. Keep doing what you're doing. Because when they started praying, they began to weep. When they started praying for the United States, Americans, people, they were crying. On their knees, crying out to the Lord. I could hardly speak when it was my time to get up. We were in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's real, too. And I got up and gave one of the shortest messages I've ever given. I said, folks, men, women, and children, keep doing what you're doing. Stay on praying ground. It's little churches like you that keep America in business. In Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, everywhere, these little people, they're on praying grounds. A lot of the big ones aren't. I don't mean to be critical. I'm just telling the truth. Wow. Here's the message. They're part of the remnant. God always saves himself a remnant when things start going to hell. Now the question for you, are you part of the remnant? Are you a nice little church person? You better be sure about this, boys, women. God is gathering a remnant. You know, there's only three ways to spend your life. You can sell it, waste it, or give it away. The rich guy that died and woke up in hell wasted his life and his wealth. He could have changed that poor guy's life. He didn't, didn't even think about it. If you have money, do something with it before you die, you fool. Don't just sit around thinking... I, I feel better and more secure just knowing it's in the bank. Stop putting your faith in stuff that can and will be taken away from you. Do something with it. God will lead you. And you know, I'm going to remind you something. Whose money is it? Is it yours? It's not yours. I just talked to a guy. He's worth $500 million. I said, I know you all have a family foundation. You're very generous. How much do you all give away? He said, 20%. Wow. Way to go. Whose money is that 20%? He said, that's God's. Well, whose money is the rest of it? That's mine. I said, that's where you're wrong. 
It's all God's. He said, this is new information for me. Can you stay afterwards? You know, talk about selling out. There's a daunting parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 12. I've given you an example of the first way you can waste your life, like the rich guy that woke up in hell. You can also sell your life. Something, somebody or something will put a price out there, and you'll bust yourself the rest of your life trying to get the prize. You're selling out. Listen to this. Jesus said all this. Luke 16, picking up at verse 16. The ground of a rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things, plenty of years laid up. Take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. One, do you see a problem with this guy's attitude? What does he say a whole lot? I, it's mine. And he presumed he had plenty of time just to sit back and enjoy it and do nothing. He sold his soul to become this wealthy. Listen how this one ends. But God said to him, Thou fool! Fool! You know why I raised my voice here? Because I study it. I'm ordained. It's my job to study this. I don't make it up. In the original language, that word fool is so strong, it's almost like a curse word. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. I've had more men after these breakfasts try to book me for a lunch or something. And 80% of them come in there and said, man, I can't sleep. You said something that's driving me crazy. What's it? I trust in my bank account. I'm obsessed with making sure it's safe. And that makes me feel safe. And I, I'm on the wrong side of this. Wow. Thou fool. You know, I was listening uh, to a message by a guy named John Ortman. And John was a pastor, and he said that uh, when he would go see his grandmother, they would play Monopoly. Remember the Monopoly? And he became obsessed. He was a fifth grader, and she would beat him like a redheaded stepchild. No offense. You're out. Where's that redheaded kid? <laughs> well, you're not a stepchild. You got it. And uh, she gloated. He said, I didn't mind losing. But at the end, she'd just kind of go, <laughs> one of these days you'll learn to play the game, John. One of these days. He's guy who's just on fire. He became obsessed with beating his grandmother at Monopoly. He went to summer camp. And they had free period. He was in the, the game room just, just recruiting anybody to play Monopoly. He played Monopoly all summer. And right before school, it was time to go see Granny. He said the game was afoot. I was ready. And he said, on that game, that game started, and he said, I absolutely crushed her. And when the game was over, I said, Grandma, let's play again. Let's play again. She said, oh, no, son. She took the board and folded it shut. She said, no, you know, son, when the game comes to an end, and it always comes to an end, all the stuff goes back in the box. Those beautiful hotels, that beautiful money, the utilities, the houses, it all goes back in the box. When the game comes to an end, and it always comes to an end, the stuff goes back in the box. I never forgot that example by him. This is so temporary. Coming back from the dead, not a lot upsets me anymore. 
people ask me, what are your greatest fears? I said, I had a heart attack and died. What you got? You know, <laughs> I'm back. Pretty relaxed these days. So I know I'm being bold with you today, but I'm pleading with you. Let me tell you who God is recruiting. I think I have technically seven minutes left, so I'll take ten. God is recruiting people who want to do the third thing. Remember, Jesus said you can waste your life, you can sell it, or the third option, just give it away. Those are the people that are rich in heaven. They give it away. This is about the 101st Airborne. Screaming Eagles was their nickname. The men of Easy Company, and this is from Ambrose Classic, Band of Brothers. HBO has a 10-part series on this. The men of Easy Company, 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. U.S. Army, they came from different backgrounds, farmers, coal miners, mountain men, sons of the Deep South. Some were desperately poor, others were middle class. One came from the old army. They were just citizen soldiers. When they were recruited, and this was the beginning of Airborne Rangers, they were just ordinary guys when they began. You don't have to be anything special. But the Airborne Rangers, Rangers, it was all volunteer. It's like the mafia. You volunteer. And if you want out, just quit. They don't want you. But they were ordinary guys. So don't sit there and go, this is above me. They came together in the summer of 1942, by which time the Europeans had been at war for three years. Late spring 1944, they became an elite, elite company of airborne light infantry. Early on the morning on D-Day, in its first combat action, Easy Company captured and put out a German battery of 405-millimeter cannons looking right down on Utah Beach. That directly affects me. I might not be standing here talking to you if it wasn't for Easy Company. My dad was in the 82nd Airborne on June 6, 1944. He was at Utah Beach. They probably saved his life, which means I'm here. The company led the way into the Caratan, fought in Holland, held the perimeter at the Bastogne, and led the counteroffensive in the Battle of Bulge, of the Bulge. In the Rhineland campaign, they led that, and at the end of the war, these guys are the ones that took Hitler's eagle's nest. They'd taken almost 150% casualties. At the peak of its effectiveness in October 1944, they were as good a rifle company as there was in the world. These guys would get wounded and sneak out of the infirmary to get back with their, their band of brothers. How did they come like that? One, they were special in their values. They put a premium on physical well-being, hierarchical of authority, and being part of an elite unit. They wanted to be with the Rangers. They wanted to be elite. Robert Rader's word, wanting to be better than the other guy took hold. Richard Winters said, the realization that doing his best was the best way to get through the army than being like the sad draftees they saw at the recruiting depots. They didn't want to be draftees. Now let me tell you, we have draftees in this room today, and we got guys and women in here. You may have a heart of an airborne ranger. They gave it away. They laid down their lives for each other. And there's incredible power in being part of a band of brothers. The Bible says if one can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. When a 747 gets airborne, it climbs out like that. When you're in a band of brothers, you're in an F-16. You know what they can do after they get airborne? Straight up. That's exponential power. <clears throat> Not that they knew much about airborne, except it was new and it was all volunteer. I love the spirit of these guys. I was training for a marathon, the Marine Marathon. 
My kids asked me to do it. I am not a runner. I'm an old football player. I was designed for five yards in a collision. That's it. Then you get to stand around 60 seconds waiting for the other one. And uh, I saw these two jugheads, which is slang for Marines, coming right towards me. You can just spot them. Shaved heads, brown T-shirt, brown shorts. It was real cold and wet, and I was whining. Oh, that's just so good. I don't like that, you know. But my manly testosterone kicked in. When I saw those guys, I wasn't going to be whining in front of them. I started running more straight up. I, get, I got saluted all the time watching because my hair's silver and it's short, so people thought I was an odd. They'd salute me. I, I, as you were, I loved it. I just went with it. <laughs> so uh, when they got close to me, good morning, sir. I said, how about this weather, man? I lowered my voice. What a phony. And, uh, and this guy looked at me and said, where else would you rather be, sir? I go, gosh, I love these guys. My dad was an airborne ranger. He had that spirit. It's a spirit I wish Christian men especially had. I see women with this spirit. I'm calling men to go airborne and stop being a flunky draftee. Stop being a pansy. Be a man by God. Be a man of God by God. Because I'm not going to talk with what I, I'm still connected around. And I've talked to people. There's some serious stuff coming our way. I'm not kidding. And you all know it somehow, don't you? We don't need draftees. Christ is not recruiting draftees. He's recruiting people that want to be go airborne. And lay down their life and give it away. My dad, he had that airborne spirit. He was the first airborne assault in the history of the United States was in North Africa. My dad went out the plane that day. He got on leave to London for about a week and then back to the front. Those guys didn't deploy for nine months. You know how long they deployed? Till the war was over. He was over there three years, sleeping on the ground. Well, at his deathbed, I'd kissed him and prayed over him. He was in Montgomery. And my Uncle Charles was in the waiting room. And they had to do a procedure, and they said, you've got to get out for a little while before you can come back and spend some more time with your father. Then Uncle Charles was the oldest. He started telling a story. He said, you knew your dad was airborne, right? I said, oh, yeah. I have his wings. He gave them to me. They're in my office. He, he said, those guys, they had the spirit. They didn't care. I said, well, he said, i got to tell you this story. We were on leave, and we started hitting all those pubs in London and probably drank too much of ale or whatever it is you get over there. And uh, we were both feeling mighty brave, mostly your dad. We are in about the third pub. And four British regulars come walking in. And your dad decided he didn't like British regulars. They were pansies compared to airborne rangers. So we got loud talking about British regulars. And in their defense, finally, they had just about enough. He said, they came slowly, all four of them came slowly walking towards us. Now, we got people in the, in the waiting room we don't even know. They're, they're leaning in listening to all this, you know. I said, well, what happened? Uncle Charles, he said, well, your dad whipped his belt off and went, the buckle ended up right there like he'd done that once or twice before. He looked at me and said, Chuck, I can take three. Can you take one? <laughs> he said, the waylay started. I said, what were you doing, Uncle Chuck? He said, I was right behind your dad doing like that. <laughs> he, he was just lawnmowing in there. I said, what happened? He said, what do you think happened? They beat the crap out of us, <laughs> threw us out the front door, and we got up just laughing. Well, that's not exactly choir boy behavior, but you got to admire that spirit. Amen? Well, the last one I want to tell you is when I actually ran in the Marine Marathon. And I had a coach. I did the training. It took about six months' worth of training. He said, at mile 20, you'll be out of carbs, and your brain will go, there's no way you're going to get 6.2 more miles out of this. 
you're done. You can't believe it because you have done the training. Just getting psyched up won't get you there. You got to do the training. Put the time in. And that happened. The Marines run the race, so at mile 20, I reached up for my fluid, and this guy wouldn't. He's like 6'2", big guns, the sleeves rolled up, fatigues. He wouldn't let go of my juice. And I looked at him, and of all those thousands of people running that race, I don't know why he picked me out. And he looked me in the eye and said, Sir! Focus, sir! Focus! And my, my hair went straight up. I was just like an electric shock, like, wow! And then I looked over because it was cold and rainy. This other Marine had a sign with black magic marker, and it just said, I accept the pain. He was doing like that. And I go, that's it. That's it. The reason it's so hard for me, I'm trying to figure out how to get 6.2 more miles out of this and not suffer. The only way I'm going to get it is to embrace suffering. A lot of men don't go airborne because they don't want to accept the pain. They're lazy and they're selfish. I'm a counselor. I used to counsel people throwing around these fancy concepts. Then I realized that people are just selfish and lazy. It's that simple. I'm calling you now to go airborne, to be part of the remnant. How do I do that? God will lead you. The Holy Spirit doesn't need any help, knows every one of you. He can show you what your mission is. That's not for me to say. My message to you today has been delivered. I've delivered the ordinance. Heaven's real. Jesus is real. Hell's real. And by the way, if you've been tiptoeing around because there's somebody in your family or a friend you know that may not know Christ, you need the special ranger up and tell them about Christ. Stop wimping around. When you have guests at your house, when you pray, say in Jesus' name. Put Jesus on the scoreboard. He said, if my name be lifted up, I'll draw people to myself. But you've got to put him on the scoreboard. One last example, and we'll put her on the tarmac. I was at an embassy in Washington, and uh, it was a meal. A lot of the people running the world were there. Uh, I was the only chaplain or minister there. But people either call me coach or chaplain. And uh, this guy... Uh, that was one of the big bosses, said, well, we're going to have Chaplain Leachman say the blessing. People are like, all right, a blessing in Washington. Wow. Must be a God. I said the blessing, and when I was about to finish, I was conflicted. Do I say in Jesus' name? I closed that prayer, I said, in your name, amen. And I immediately was like stabbed with a spear in my heart. I wimped out. I wanted relationships with these guys. But I wasn't trusting God to give me the relationship and the favor with these guys. And I pulled back. And I became a draftee. I didn't finish that prayer like a ranger. I was so ashamed in the car driving home with Holly. I was, I was, I was weeping. I said, did you hear it? She said, yeah, I was going to mention it to you. You know, when I was dead on the other side, how many of those guys were there? What could they do for me? Nothing. Nothing. God will use people in your life, but look through them to God. Stop messing around. Stop being a draftee. I told Holly... If I ever do that again, I'm just going to find myself something else to do. Just drive a truck or something. I'm not even going to say I'm a chaplain. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm down to 60 seconds if you're pacing yourself. You want to grow double what you are today in your spirituality? Double. Just do what I'm about to tell you. Stop being ashamed of Jesus Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of Jesus Christ. The Hubble telescope now tells us there's two trillion galaxies out there. Two trillion. 
So don't sit around going, how could God do that? And let's go, shut up. God's awesome. Just get on your face on the floor in the shape of a cross. Two trillion galaxies, and you know in your heart there's more. God's precious gift, Jesus Christ. This is a deal you can't walk away from. Now, I'm going to bow my head. We're closing. I want three people to pray, and I'll be the fourth. I want you, if you, if God tugs your heart to pray, I don't want Fox News report. I don't want a political report. I don't care about that. I want you to pray to Jesus on our behalf, on your behalf. Pray loud enough so we can hear and don't pray all day. Christ said your prayers don't have to be that long. Three people, and then I'll be the fourth. Let's bow our heads. Who's the first person that's getting a tug on your heart? Amen. Number two. Amen. Number three. I want to close by just saying, I want to live a life of danger. I want to be an airborne ranger. Even if we're surrounded by the enemy, airborne rangers are supposed to be surrounded by the enemy. Lord, I fear you and I don't fear any man. Is that boasting? No, that's testifying. This ain't a boastimony. I'm testifying. You're calling rangers. Men and women, people who mean business to be part of your remnant. The draftees aren't going to do anything. It's like they don't exist. Lord, I pray we'd have a revival in our hearts today in this room. In Christ's name, amen.